Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 8th, 2010. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. If you've listened to this program for any length of time, then you really know that the axe that I'm trying to grind is the is the axe that basically says, Christ died for your sins. Yes, that's the, you see, it's all about the gospel, that stumbling block, the thing that is foolishness or, or stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks, Christ died for our sins. It's all about the gospel. And over and again, when, when uh, I do discernment work here, we're comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God, but more importantly, pointing out how what people are saying that is not true, that is not what God's word said, points people away from Christ. It doesn't point them towards him. It points them away from him. It either focuses you on your celebrity rock star pastor who has the gumption to stick it to all those people out there that want to do church the old-fashioned way, or it points you to prosperity, or to, you know, you just name the thing. Over and again, when when so-called Bible teachers are pointing you away from Jesus Christ, that shows a lack of discernment on the part of the people listening and on the part of the person preaching, on the part of the people listening, because they believe that what they're hearing is from God, and yet they do this with an open Bible. It, it just amazes me that uh, that people can bring their Bibles to church, have some guy flip through and have you, you know, rip this verse out of context here, rip this verse out of context there, and then end up weaving together this tapestry of deceit that points us away from Christ. It's a dire and terrible and sad situation. And it's it's frustrating for many people in the church. I get emails from people who are frustrated, you know, basically saying, you know, I'm I'm doing everything I can to uh, you know to combat this in my own church, and uh, and what am I supposed to do when the pastor is just so blatantly 
teaching false doctrine rather than proclaiming Christ and him crucified and is off on some tangent, either the seeker-driven uh, prosperity light, you know, God wants you to you know, have abundance here and now, we're going to ha- preach to your felt needs, or the full-blown uh, prosperity heresy like we heard yesterday from Paul DeJong out of Life Church in, uh, in New Zealand, or, or even a lot of the liberal and emergent uh, type distractions and heresies that point us away and away and away from Christ. These are dire days. These are dangerous days. And there are people out there now claiming all kinds of interesting, miraculous uh, events taking place, the raising of the dead and other things. And over and again, you know, listen— it doesn't matter if somebody is raised from the dead. The question is, what does the preacher who is preaching teach regarding Christ and the, and the gospel? What are they telling you Christianity is? Is they are they saying Christian? Are they saying Christianity is all about uh, you know God somehow helping you to achieve self actualization, whatever that may be. Uh, you know whether it's becoming a a, a healthy and wealthy suburbanite. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the social gospel or other, other things, you know, if are they pointing you away from Christ or are they pointing you to Christ? So it doesn't matter to me if somebody, you know, lines up 12 caskets in front of them and, and you know, that, that a doctor declares each and every one of the people in those cast, caskets as stone cold clinically dead. And then the, the you know, the, the so-called preacher or minister gets up and, and commands all of 12 of them to come forth from the grave and they all stand up and start walking. If that person starts preaching to you a gospel other than the one laid out clearly in scripture of Christ and him crucified for our sins and his, him raised again on the third day bodily, bodily raised from the get, uh, dead on the third day for our justification, you are not to listen to that pastor. And it just amazes me that uh, people are w- so willing to sell out for so little. I mean, oh, man, unbelievable. Just, it's, it's sad. It's really, really sad. We are awash in Bibles, and yet that seems to be the very book that isn't opened. That seems to be the very book that is the least understood in the church, the place where the folks who are there to hear God's Word should be near experts on God's Word compared to the people out in the world. And yet over and again, it's... It, is clear to me that the epidemic level of biblical illiteracy that we're facing in our times, um, that you know there are there are folks outside of the church, a lot of them that know the Bible better. There are atheists who know the Bible better than Christians, and it's it's to our shame, and it's to our shame because we have great news to proclaim. We have the good news that today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. That our great God and Savior today is calling sinners to repent of their sins and be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that He is granting today full and complete pardon. To that's that's the that's the, that's the message, but instead we're off in bizarro land. And over and again, it just amazes me that it doesn't matter if the person's a liberal or a conservative. I hear this in both camps. Um, that. You know, oh, that that stuff about Jesus dying on... Well, where do you understand that? We get that, duh. <laughs> As if, you know, that's just some doctrine that just gets you into the door. 
you know, that's your that's the ticket. Once you once your ticket's punched, you know, you you go in and you get your ticket punched. And, you know, then then you got to get on the rat wheel of works righteousness. And and then you know, and, you know, if you're concerned about whether or not you should be in the funhouse, you know, just look down at your punched ticket. You know, it it says something about Jesus dying for our sins. And yet, Christian theology, when you really understand it, Christ is the center of it, not the beginning of it. Christian theology is not linear. It's not. It has a center. And, and you know, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but uh, yeah, um, to my Reformed and Calvinistic friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, this, this would be one of my critiques of uh, Calvinistic systematic theology, is that it seems to work linearly rather than circular. I, I think biblical Christianity is has a center, and everything emanates from that center. Now, that being said, I understand that there is a place and there is a time and, there, and, and that systematic theology should not be impugned or maligned, and, uh, and that it has an important place. I rely on it heavily. However, I'm more drawn to uh, the stories of Scripture where Christ is center. When we talk about Christ-centered theology— we're not talking about a theology that is shaped by a line that begins at one point and ends at another. I, 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 I don't see theology as linear. I see it as something different. But that's a completely other topic that I'll have to unpack at a future, on a future edition of Fighting for the Faith. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. I've got an email that I would like to read today, so we're going to do a little bit of email and let's see here. Um, looking at my web browser, I, you know, I kind of queued everything up uh, on my uh, web browser. Oh, boy. Uh, there's a series of videos I want to get to. Uh, well, let's see here. I've got audio from a video from a gentleman um, in Wisconsin who is having a 50% off sale for all of the jewelry in his store because apparently Jesus is coming back. We're going to play the audio from that. Um, and then, um, oh, man. Um, I don't even know what to think of this. Uh, I'm going to play for you audio from a couple of videos from a website um, called pureattraction.com that claims to be some kind of Christian um, ministry that will help men learn how to attract the woman that they desire. Now, being married, <laughs> seriously, yeah. I I've been out of the dating game for a long time. I've been married to my wife for uh, for 22 years and we dated for 5 years prior to that. So I mean, and you're sitting there going, "When did you start dating your wife?" When I was 15. Anyway, um so th- um th- here's the idea is is that, you know, I may not be the most qualified person to critique this stuff, but what, <laughs> what I was hearing was <sighs> do we really need this? So I'll be playing some of that today and, and, and soliciting your your advice. And then this is something I've noticed, and this is a um, a topic that I'll delve into, is, is that, you know, during uh, during different parts of the year, the news stories either come in at such a rapid pace and a rapid clip that I can't keep up with them, or you start getting towards the holiday time and the news stories start getting... Just like who cares? There, there, um, there's stories in the in the uh, on the Christian Post and other places that I'm just reading it, going, 
Yawn. Come on, give me something. Yeah, give me something better than this. So I, I decided what I would do is put together just a quick, uh, you know, a, a quick couple of uh, news stories that I basically am, am saying, why do we even need these? You know, I mean, yeah, you know, and, and 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 basically calling for journalists to not take vacations before the holidays. They can, they, I don't care if they vacation during the holidays. You know, like. From Christmas to New Year's, no one expects any major stories to break during those times. No problemo. But um, I think that some journalists get a little bit lazy during this time of the year. And what they end up doing is just, um, you know, searching out there for the press releases as they come across the PR news wires and going, you know, I'll just publish this one and, you know, tidy it up just a smidge, change it a little bit and and just forward it on as a news story when it really isn't a news story at all. So I always love news that isn't news because, you know, it gives me something to complain about. Not that I ever run out of things to complain about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And then during hour number two today, (coughs) excuse me, we're going to be, I'm going to be playing the uh, lecture that I gave at the Outlaw Preacher reunion back on Saturday. And, uh, yeah, I had to go back and clean it up. I had to, I had uh, the snuffles, the sniffles because of my cold. And that morning, I had woken up with a um, uh, with a migraine headache, and my nose was, you know, my sinuses were out of control. And so I had to go back into the audio and remove every instance of of uh, that I could that that would make sense of me going, you know, like that. You're thinking, could you please remove that? No, 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 that's in there for your benefit. You know, anyway, I just, I don't particularly like that sound. And so I noticed as I was back listening to it that I did that so often that it was driving me crazy. So I tried to, <clears throat> yeah, so there. So that's what I needed to do. But anyway, we'll talk about my uh, my lecture on the other side of uh, this hour. So, you know, that's what we're going to do today. Make yourself at home, get comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers if you're in a cold weather climate, especially if you're in central Indiana. Um, yeah, we've got snow on the ground, and we got a big uh, snowstorm coming at us uh, over the weekend, so I can hardly wait. You know, I'm kind of hoping I get snowed in. It'd be kind of fun. Anyway, so uh, let's move along here. And... Uh All right. Got an email from Dana in Indianapolis. I love this music. This is how I envision all of you typing your emails to me. In rhythm. Okay, Dana writes, she says, uh, uh, Chris, Sunday at the end of uh, our church service, our pastor uh, said that he was, there was going to be uh, an impromptu church meeting. He gave everyone time to take a break and let those who are not members leave. Well, I'm thinking it's something about a new building since we're meeting at, uh, at a junior high school. And um, our pastor started out by reading a scripture about discipline and the steps to take regarding that subject. He went on to tell the steps that they had taken and proceeded to say that there was a couple, he actually named their names, uh, that they were having marital problems, and he said that the church did not find grounds for divorce, and while the wife was still uh, was willing to repent, the husband was not. So basically, he asked the church to refrain from having a relationship with the husband, but if anyone was in contact with him, to plead with him to repent. My first thought at church on Sunday was, wow. Um, 
my church takes the Bible seriously. But then later, my husband and I were talking about this on our way home, and my husband pointed out, who's going to love this man? We're all we're all uh, with sin. Then later, while taking uh, talking with uh, my mom over the phone, my mom wasn't sure about it either. And the verse where Jesus said, those without sin, may they be the first one to cast a stone, kept coming to mind. Well, last night at our membership class, I asked the pastor, Uh, some questions in front of everyone. I asked how long this process had been going on. He thought for a moment and was careful about how he answered. He said it's been going on, he'd been thinking about the process for 90 days. And then I brought up the verse how Jesus said, how the first without sin may be the first to cast a stone. But my pastor's response was that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees were not believers in Christ. Uh, A pastor went on to say that if if he had had his way, he would have liked to wait longer in this matter, but he told us in very it, it was very clear that God uh, spoke, you know, that, that God's words told him that he has to take action. So I, I add that uh, my pastor had tears of sorrow while reading the letter to the church on Sunday. So uh, through this process, I kept wondering if churches would have taken such stands in the past, if society would be in the place it's in today. <laughs> Dana, you know, this is a great email. And uh, the, the couple reasons why I like the email. Number one, kudos to your pastor for actually engaging in and following through on the matter of church discipline. This is something that, uh, that far too many pastors do not take seriously. I, in my, in my ch- time in the church, I've actually seen this played out myself as well. A similar situation, except for the husband was uh, you know, willing to reconcile and the wife wasn't. And so it went differently. But uh, let, me, let me read the relevant passage here. It's Matthew chapter 18. I'll start at verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you, two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So the idea here is, is that the, the goal of church discipline is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's not just repentance. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And well, this, is a, this is a famous passage here, uh, Matthew 18, uh, 17. If he refuses, even, uh, li- if he refuses uh, to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And now that begs the question then, how are we to treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, answer, look at the way Jesus treated them. He treated them kindly and with respect and treated them as unbelievers and called them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. It's the same here. Now, I thought it was interesting that you and your mom both thought about this this verse that says, uh, uh, those of you without sin, may they be the first to cast this, uh, you know, to cast a stone. Now, understand, that that the context of that is not exactly church discipline. When, you know, basically, when you read that account— uh, in in uh, the Gospel of John, you realize that this was th- there's something dubious going on here, and Jesus doesn't let the woman completely off the hook. Okay, if you go back and you read the story, okay, you got you got 
the the, you know, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bringing to Jesus a woman whom they claim they caught in the act of adultery. Okay, and uh, and so really they're they're not going after this woman; they're going after Jesus. That's really what they're trying to do here. And so, um, you know, and they basically say the law of Moses says that we are to stone her. Now the question is, where's the dude? Where you know? Last time I checked, it took two to tango. How come both of them were not brought before Jesus? I find that very interesting, a very uh, poignant piece of the of the puzzle that's missing. But uh, Jesus draws, begins drawing in the sand, and then he says to the crowd gathered there, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now notice, this is a gang of people who are setting ab- set ab- about to exercise capital punishment okay now as as politically incorrect as church discipline is it is not capital punishment that in fact that's not even the goal of it the goal of it is not death the goal of it is that the person repent and be forgiven that's the goal the goal is for the person to repent and be forgiven and so in this particular case, that passage does not apply. What applies here is what Jesus laid out clearly regarding church discipline, the process that is to take place. And so, for all intents and purposes, based upon the email that you sent me, it looks like your pastor followed the steps that Jesus laid out. Okay, And the goal here is repentance. We want that sinner, we want that man to repent and to be forgiven. that The church is supposed to be a place of the forgiveness of sins, which is why Jesus, in verse 18, talks about, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So the idea, the binding and the loosing here is basically the you know the proclamation to the impenitent sinner that their impenitence at this point is withholding them from the forgiveness of sins and that their sins are to be bound and they are not to be forgiven until they are brought to penitence and uh and so the idea there is not to send them to hell the idea is to get them to turn let me let me give you another cross reference on this um it's Second Thessalonians. I think I spoke about this passage last week, and uh, the Apostle Paul gives some very interesting advice uh, to the. Um, um, is it the, is it Second Thessalonians? Yeah, uh, maybe it might be first. Hang on a second here. Yeah, it, I'm sorry. It is Second Thessalonians. It's Second Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse thirteen. Paul kind of talking about church discipline here. As for you, brothers. Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. But warn him as a brother. This comes back to, you know, uh, Jesus says, when somebody won't repent, you treat them as a Pharisee or tax collector. How are we to treat Pharisees and tax collectors? We are to lovingly warn them and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's the idea. So we don't want to have anything to do with them as far as Christian fellowship is concerned, yet we're not to regard them as enemies, but we're to warn them as brothers. And so this kind of comes back to the question that your husband had, but your pastor did the right thing. And now it's for you and your congregation to stop 
and to soberly pray for this man and pray that God would grant him repentance and the forgiveness of his sins and that there would be reconciliation regarding uh, the divorce that, uh, that you know, he is seeking after at this point. Because, um, you know, if there is no biblical grounds for it, then he is in sin, and your pastor has the obligation from God's Word to call him to repentance. Love the fact that there's still churches out there that are doing what needs to be done in this capacity. All right, moving along here, I only have a couple of minutes before we uh, go to our first break. Um, those of you living in Wisconsin, I got a Facebook uh, message from somebody pointing me to a YouTube video. Um, well, maybe I should let you listen to it. Let's just say that there's a jewelry store owner somewhere in Wisconsin who's taking out television advertising, and he's having a big you know, 50% off sale because supposedly Jesus is coming. Makes you wonder if he's been getting his information from William Tapley. But uh, listen in. Did you know the Bible predicts the day of the Lord followed by the return of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem? As I read the daily news and look around the world, I believe we're really close to that day. Nonetheless, here and now, if you want jewelry, I have access to millions. Okay, I kid you not. Okay. You can't see this, but it says second coming sale, 50% off. This guy is having a 50% off sale because he believes the the headlines show that Jesus is coming soon. Why, can I just ask a silly question? Why is it over and over again throughout history when people have tried to, you know, to play pin the date on the end coming uh, you know, that's like pin the tail on the donkey. When, you know, they, when they think that, that we're getting close, that people sell homes and and head up to the mountains and stuff like and you know, and end up you know having 50% off sales in their jewelry stores and things like that. It just, why do they do that? I, seriously, if, 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 see, this is, this would never happen, but let's say that Jesus appeared to me and that, that I was absolutely convinced, you know, that, you know, at the end of it, that there was no doubt whatsoever that Jesus himself appeared to me. And he said, listen, Chris, I'm coming back next Thursday at 2 p.m. You know, I wouldn't sell my car. I, I, I might buy only groceries enough to get me through Thursday, um, but um, you wouldn't see me. You, you understand what I'm saying here? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I mean, if you think Jesus is coming soon, you still got to make it until the day when he arrives. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you've got to figure out how to make it to that day. And if by any chance you're wrong, you know, maybe you, what you thought was Jesus actually turned out to be a, you know, a a, a piece of really bad putrefying beef that uh, caused you to have hallucinations, um, you want to make sure that that should that day come and go, that you can keep going. So yeah, I'd, how long can somebody stay in business by selling everything at 50% off? It, and it literally says, second coming sale, 50% off. Let me back this up. Nonetheless, here and now, if you want jewelry, I have access to millions. Diamonds and gemstones, gold, silver, watches and clocks, and I'm selling everything at 50% off, giving you unbelievable savings. LTD Jewelers, Tower Avenue, Superior. There you go. You live near Superior, Wisconsin. You know, 
you know, you're looking, you, you, uh, you, uh, single guys out there who are thinking about popping the question to your, uh, uh, you know, to your girlfriends and, you know, you're thinking about, you know, you, you know, taking that next step, go visit this guy's, um, jewelry store. You could probably get a pretty decent diamond for 50% off. <sighs> yeah, this is crazy. This is just unbelievable. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Uh, we'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop, stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, 
How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Well, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Morning. This uh, program steps on everybody's toes. Yours, mine. Yeah, I even step on my own toes every now and then. Just want to let you know that. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Pick one. When you join our crew, it's a monthly obligation. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And in other words, you're paying for the privilege of having me step on your toes. You see? It... <laughs> Here's the idea behind it is, is that God's Word, uh, when we apply it, uh, when we preach it, when we preach, yeah, it, it, it ends up, well 
convicting all of us on one level or another. Anyway, and I could be wrong on the things that I say. And when I'm wrong, you just send me an email and say, Roseboro, you're wrong. Here's what God's word really says. You need to wake up and smell the coffee and repent. And I'll go, yeah, I guess I should. And so I will. Anyway, different story. Anyway, uh, if you would like to make a one-time contribution and specify the amount that you would like to contribute, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, looking at my time here. All right, here's... um, All right, there's a website out there called Pure Attraction... Dot com. It, it, it claims, it, it literally says, learn how to attract the woman you desire. Now, I know that there's there's a lot of you guys out there that are listening to this program, and you're single, okay? I get it. You know, it's, it, it's these are, you know, I, I don't remember what it was like being single, but I know that it's tough because I've heard. But uh, just... Um, just my question is is that um the the subtitle for the uh, their this ministry is the art of christian social dynamics the art of christian social dynamics i need to warn you ahead of time the guy who you're going to hear is um going to be shooting from the hip he's going to be saying saying, saying some stuff that well um may be um controversial. So yeah, I just want to let you know that ahead of time. So I don't uh I don't really know his name. Maybe I'll figure it out as we go, but here is um the secret to authentic confidence, uh one of the featured media resources at pureattraction.com uh, which claims to uh specialize in the art of Christian social dynamics. Yeah, so those of you you single guys out there, this is a public service that I am doing for you here at Fighting for the Faith by playing this. Here we go. I've got a question for you guys. Are you doing your best to be a strong Christian man, but when it comes to the area of dating and attraction, you're still frustrated and confused? Um, it comes to the area of dating and attraction. Okay, now, I gotta tell you. I've heard lots of uh, sermons out there by seeker-driven evangelical types, and um, you know I've heard about the area of finances, the area of marriage, the area of relationships, the area... But now it, I did not realize that there was another area, the area of, um, con, what is it, confidence and attraction? Well, I've got another question for you. If someone were to tell you specifically what you needed to change in order to be a more authentically attractive man, yet still retain your ethics and your morality? <laughs> so I, I did not know. I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm only 26 seconds into the video and already I'm struggling. Um, where in the Bible do we find the passages that talk about being authentically attractive? You know, being the fact that I'm an underweight fat guy, I, you know, I (laughs) apparently I've given up on this. Anyway, I just, I'm not sure what's going on here. Would you be strong enough to make the needed changes? I want to share a little story with you. Please do. I was watching this video on YouTube a few weeks ago. It was of a pastor speaking to the young men in his congregation. Right. And I'm paraphrasing here, but in essence, this is what he said. Now, if you women out there who listen to Fighting for the Faith, I'd like you to do me a favor. Go to pureattraction.com. Go to their media section 
and just you know and looking at this guy tell me if he exudes authentic christian attractiveness i you know i don't know but you know young men do you want to have a young woman in your life do you want to get a date then you need to grow a pair you need to man up you need to get out there you need to ask these girls out on a date a pastor said that what what text was he preaching from you know I think I get it. I think I know where he was going with that. He was trying to implore the young men in his congregation to operate with more confidence. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a tr- confidence. Yes. Tricky thing, though. Because if we just start pretending to have confidence when we're around people, especially when we're around girls, sometimes that confidence can come off sort of fake or phony. Yeah, that's bad. You don't want to have fake and phony confidence. Right. If she senses that you're sort of putting on an act, all that acting like you're confident won't really do a whole lot for you. Truth of the matter is, confidence isn't something you put on like a jacket. Confidence is something that comes from competence. And competence is built by taking consistent right action. Sounds like the law to me. Okay. I don't completely disagree with this pastor. I think for the most part, he's right. I would agree that we need to take responsibility for our own dating life. We need to take responsibility for building confidence in our life. But if we don't have those reference experiences in our past to show us how to be confident, when we get in that moment, we won't display confidence. That's where pure attraction comes in. Tell us more, please. We give you tools that allow you to create a renewed mindset and help you build new habits so that when you are in the moment, you're practicing right action, which will lead you. In other words, you're giving people... This sounds just like another... Yeah, you know, I got another sin-busting idea for you here. You know, I've got I've got the secret track so that you can do right actions, so that <sighs> to building competence, which will lead you to building what we call core confidence. So you've invented this thing called core confidence. Okay, that's what you really want. You don't want confidence in a moment or for one date. You want to have the kind of core confidence. That when you're around the girl, she feels like you are confident regardless of what's happening around you. Regardless of what she says or does. You are a confident man. So, I leave you with this question. Please, I can't wait to hear it. Are you willing to do the hard work it's going to take to bring out your most confident, authentically attractive self? Are you willing? Sounds like one of those great challenge questions. Are you willing to do what it takes to bring out your most attractive, confident self? Oh, please tell me what my steps are because I am just not confident. Next week, I'm going to send you a video that contains a lesson that I learned. That I can't wait. Help me build a more core level confidence that once I learned this lesson, It changed the way I saw dating completely. Right on.
All right. Well, you know, in uh, in order to continue here with our public service, um, <sighs> I'd like to play part two of this uh, of this video series. And uh, so here 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 we go. Um, part two: Being a Christian makes you high value. Here we go. In my last video. I highlighted an example from a sermon, and I talked about how it's not enough for us just to put on a thin veneer of confidence. Right. You 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 gotta you, you gotta do more than just have a veneer. You you need to go and cut down a confidence tree and use the wood from that. Got it. In today's video, I'm going to be sharing with you a very powerful lesson that once I learned this lesson, it changed everything about the way that I see dating and attraction. How did this guy become an expert on this topic? I th- I just want to know how do you become an expert? How does you do you become an, a ministry expert in dating and attraction? If you'll remember, in last week's example, the pastor was imploring his congregation, the young men in his congregation, to operate with more confidence. Yeah, he gets to the end of the same sermon and he's ma- he's getting to his big point, and this is what he says. And I'm paraphrasing here, but in essence, this is what he says. Young men, when you get that girl on a date, don't just take her to a movie. You got to give her a really awesome experience. So take her to something special. And then, do, do any of the guys that are watching these videos have fathers? I mean, seriously. I mean, this sounds like the kind of dating advice I could get from my dad. It sounds like the kind of dating advice I gave to my son. Hmm. When you take her home, you walk her to the door. You pray with her at the door, and when you get in your car, you pray to God that he allows you to see her again. You know, I think I understand where he's going with this example. Yeah, the question is, where are you going with it? He's trying to communicate to his guys that they need to have confidence, give the girl a special experience, involve God in that experience in some way. And in these ways, I agree with him. But the subtext of this example is this. You see the girl high on a pedestal. She's a princess. And you see yourself low status. You're a low-life surf that's just lucky to be in her presence. You should, well, it depends on how hot she is. You should be groveling at her feet. I would like to encourage you guys to do something a little different. I'd like you to start seeing yourself as a high-status man, a prince. This in no way diminishes who she is. She's still a princess, but now you begin to see yourself as an equal. Right on, dude. And when you communicate to her... <sighs> um, can I question the premise of what you said? You know, treating a girl nicely does not mean that you're groveling. It's like this, instead of like this. You see... If you communicate in a way that she's high status and you're low status, you kind of subtly subcommunicate that you don't feel like you're good enough for her. She will lose respect for you and her interest level will go down. So what I want to implore you guys to do is to begin to see yourself as a higher value man. So when we hang out with a girl, we communicate more like a chill, confident vibe. Okay, guys, you got that? 
make sure that when you communicate to the girl that you want to have a date with, that you communicate that chill, confident vibe. Rather than neediness and desperation. You see, I believe that God wants us all to be the most confident, attractive men that we can possibly be. Can, can you point that to me in scripture, please? Now, I know that some of the messages that we've received keep us operating in reaction to the world around us and to the women in our lives. And I'm not using this example to pick on a pastor or some sermon somewhere. I'm saying these things because trying to speak to a larger issue. I'm trying to pinpoint something that we really need to pay attention to. And that would be? This. We all need to start taking responsibility ourselves for the messages that we receive. And that's where pure attraction comes in. We're going to show you the minor tweaks, the nuances that you need to do to make changes in the way that you think and act so that you can be the most confident, attractive Christian man that you can be. Okay, just one more. Oh, man. Oh, man. I... Okay, this next video, I wanted to get, I wanted to build the, um, um, to build the basis, the foundation first, to, to, so that I can get, really get to this one. Are you ready for some Christian pickup lines? Now, I'm not kidding. This is Christian dating advice along with actual, you know, how to start up a conversation and, you know, to, you know, th so th this, we're going to hear um, some Christian pickup lines. Tell me what you think. Would these, those of you single women out there who listen to Fighting for the Faith, would this work on you? I, th that's my question for you. So here, here are some Christian pickup lines from pureattraction.com, helping men get the hey guys, woman of their desires. Today, I'm going to be sharing with you kind of a brief overview of how to open a conversation with a girl you have not previously met. Okay, so to preface this before I get started, um, thing to keep in mind is that these are simply tools. They're tactics for you to display the different aspects of your personality. Really, these tools and techniques won't be very helpful unless you are making a real connection with that girl in that moment. So the ultimate goal here is to make... So don't try these unless you're making a connection. Whatever that means. A genuine, authentic connection. That being said, today I'm going to be sharing with you three different types of openers. The first one I'm going to share with you is called a situation. Opener. Let me translate that. This is a pickup line. These are three Christian pickup lines uh, from pureattraction.com. Learn how to attract the woman you desire. Here we go. Situational opener. A situational opener is where you make a comment on something that's happening around you or make a comment about something about her, maybe something she's wearing. Here's an example of a situational opener. Hey, those boots you're wearing, looks like you're in a motorcycle gang. Don't get me wrong, those boots are cute, but tell the truth, are you in a gang? <laughs> Seriously, come on! Yeah. <laughs> Hey, those boots you wear. <laughs> you look like you're in a motorcycle bag. Gang, come on, tell me the truth. Level with me. Are you really in a gang? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, we continue. Okay, now, 
More important than what I'm saying is what I'm subcommunicating about myself. Subcommunication, okay. Through what I'm saying. When I come up and I tease a girl about her boots, what I'm doing is I'm setting this frame that I'm the big brother, she's the little sister, I'm there to tease her. I'm there to bring fun into her day. The girl will read that subcom and she'll realize, okay, it's time to have fun. The other thing I'm doing is... <laughs> Those of you women out there listening, are you agreeing going, oh yeah, yeah, just I'll key in on his subcom and go, oh, this is my big brother, it's time to have fun. I'm communicating to her that I don't take this too seriously. You know, I'm chill, relaxed, and I'm there to have fun. She wants to have fun, great. If not, that's okay too. All right, second type of opener. It is the opinion opener. Opinion opener is just that. You just ask the girl an opinion about something. Now, here's the key with an opinion opener. You can easily come off like a guy that is taking a survey. So, once again, the thing you want to do here is you just want to make it seem relaxed and in the moment. An example of an opinion opener is, hey, do girls like guys with tattoos? I notice more and more Christians are getting tattoos. Do girls even like that? <clears throat> Those of you single women out there, yeah, you keep the, you, just, you might want to write these down. Okay, so the next time you're you know out and about somewhere. And some guy tries out the, uh, hey, are you in a Christian gang because of your boots line? Understand that's um, an opener. It's a pickup line. Uh, you know, it's opinion opener. This is, you know, this is all designed to reel you in. You're just a fish. This is apparently bait. Now, this gives her an opportunity to share what the, she thinks about something. Even if she doesn't like tattoos, you can dovetail that conversation into something about style or fashion. Maybe something she is more interested in talking about. But the point is, you got the conversation started. Okay, third type of opener I'm going to share with you. Going direct. It's the direct opener. The direct opener. Got it. Okay. So. A direct opener is where you state exactly what is on your mind. So an example of a direct opener would be, you are adorable. I want to meet you. What's your name? What I'm doing when I just state exactly what's on my mind is I am subcommunicating in that moment that I am a guy that is bold and I will tell you exactly how I feel. This can be very attractive if you are speaking from your core intent. If you're not 100% committed to what you're... You don't, whatever you do, don't speak if you're not speaking from your core intent. That, you, then you crash and burn. It's bad things happen then. You're saying... Most likely, you will lose the girl. She will detect that you're not fully congruent with what you're saying. So, if you're so not... So, girls have congruency meters. Got it. Feeling like she's really adorable? Don't say that to a girl. Either use a situational or an opinion opener. So, okay, do you have girls, are you paying attention here? So, here's the deal. If a guy comes up to you with a situational or an opinion opener, then what he really is actually subcommunicating is, is that he doesn't find you completely adorable yet. All right, so if you're in a church environment, this is something to keep in mind. Oftentimes, it's a pretty relaxed social environment. So if you're hanging out there, virtually anything will open a conversation. 
The reason why I'm sharing these things with you is because it gives you a way to interject some fun immediately into your conversation, right at the beginning. All right? So, that's what I want you guys to do. As soon as you're done watching this video, I want you to go out either to a mall or a coffee shop or wherever you hang out or to church if that's where you're headed. And I want you to use one of these openers on someone you have not previously met. If you're feeling really bold, I want you to use one of all three openers and just see how far you can get in conversation with people. Most importantly, have fun with this stuff. And then when you're done, I want you to come back and leave a comment on this video on how things went for you. Or shoot me an email. All right, you guys. I'll catch you later. Word, dude. Wow. Oh, this just sounds miserable. Oh, man. Is it really that complicated? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm praise the Lord that there's a ministry out there that'll give you strategies and tactics on how to start up a conversation so that you can learn how to attract the woman of your dreams. Praise the Lord. Oh, man. I just. Uh, it sounds horror. I just, I'm serious. I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm married. I cannot imagine what, how difficult it's got to be to be single. But I, just in what I'm hearing, I'm just not buying what I'm hearing. Those of you who've tried this stuff out, could you let me know if it really works? And you know, and which which opener did you use? Did, did you use the situational one, the opinion opener, or did you just go for the gusto and say, you know what, <laughs> I think you're absolutely hot, and uh, you know that you know what that means is that you know I I want to know you. I want to. I, I, I would you have my children? You know, uh, uh, ugh, seriously. I mean, come on. Anyway, I just, you know, I, <laughs> it, maybe it's just because I'm not single. That might be my problem. I just, you know, I don't think that this is that hard. I have no problem striking up conversations with women. But then again, I'm married, and so my motives are have nothing to do with anyway. <sighs> all right, all right. One more thing. You know what I'm going to do? Um, I'll play this next uh, video. It's it, it, it's kind of a segue video before I do my uh, play my lecture from the uh, Outlaw Preacher reunion. So let's uh, take our second break. I'm going to go floss my mind and get that stuff out of my head. It just seems so contrived. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Good night. Hi, what's your opinion about politics? And boy, do I think you're a babe. Okay, all right. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. 
I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. (laughs) And just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. This is just a weird program. You know, if, if I were a woman, I would feel like, how can it be authentic if you're working on a strategy and a tactic to try to draw me into a conversation so that you, so that I can be the woman of your dream? You know, I just, it just doesn't sit right with me. It's off. This is an argument in favor of, a, of arranged marriages. All right. Now, this is normally the time when we do our sermon review time, and uh, we it, well, it's we're, I'm going to play a lecture. I'm going to play something. I'm going to play the audio from the, what I played the uh, what I said the other day at the Outlaw Preacher reunion. And before I do that, I need to kind of by way of segue, you know, since I'm not going to play the uh, 
you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I, I want to kind of segue a little bit and uh, walk you through what it is that I was trying to accomplish there and kind of give you a, a heads up about the lecture itself. But let me do this by, first of all, playing audio from a news story from probably one of my favorite legalists, okay? Yeah, I don't know if you all have ever heard of Pastor Steven Anderson. He's a KJV-only guy out there in Tempe, Arizona. And uh, he's pretty famous for some of the things that he said. And he is a unashamed legalist, okay? And I'm I'm using his a recent story that appeared in 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 the in Arizona on the news as kind of an example of the exact thing I was avoiding, and I'll explain why here in a second. But uh, here is um, a news story about Pastor Stephen Anderson, and l- listen in. A Tempe church is being labeled a hate group tonight. Their anger targeted at a specific group wishing they were dead. ABC 15's Christopher. Okay, did you catch that? It's not that they just have a particular view about a particular thing, but they they are wishing that particular people were dead. They want them dead. Sign has an exclusive interview with their leader who brought out the Bible to defend his church's values. Do you hate homosexuals? Absolutely. That's Pastor Stephen Anderson, and this is his church in a Tempe strip mall, the Faithful Word Baptist Church, according to a report released by the Southern Poverty Law Center, is a hate group. Anderson didn't know about it. I showed him the article, and he wasn't surprised or interested to read it. Yeah, I can get the gist of it. He admits he hates homosexuals and preaches it. Do I hate? Absolutely. But am I just all about hate? No, I'm sure I'm a lot more about love than I am hate. So... But it's you hate stupid. homosexuals, so then you're I do. Hate I group. do hate homosexuals. Then if that if hating homosexuals makes our church a hate group, then that's what we are. You don't mind being called uh, uh, the leader of a hate group? No, I don't, because they called Jesus Beelzebub and crucified him and and killed him. So I guess they're always going to hate Christians. While defending his beliefs with the Bible in hand, Anderson says he wishes death upon homosexuals. You believe that homosexuals should die? Should I be a Baptist pastor if I don't believe what the Bible says? Would you really respect me as a Baptist pastor? If parts of this book offend the Southern Poverty Law Center, then they can just label this a hate book. He says his church members are focusing on knocking on doors around the valley, attempting to recruit more followers. I asked him if he was promoting violence. I've never promoted violence, and I've never laid hands on a soul in my life. I've never hurt anybody. It's just my opinions that are somehow deemed so dangerous. In Tempe, Christopher Sign, ABC 15 News. Okay, now I play that just by way of contrast. Okay, if you know anything about folks in the emergent uh, conversation, not, not that they have attended his church, but they've attended churches that 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 specialize in the law, the Mosaic law, and um, and on the gospel, yeah, not so much, and um, and so you know, unfortunately, Stephen Anderson is a little bit of a caricature. He's he's a living caricature of of uh, one of the things that is wrong in the church. Not all of the things, but one of the things. You know, the, keep in mind there's two ditches that we're trying to avoid: legalism and lawlessness. You, you, you know, those are the two ditches, and the only way that's achieved is by keeping law and gospel in their proper balance and using the law lawfully in order to condemn sinners of their sin and to 
basically take away their uh, self-righteousness and to cause them to change their mind so that they can then hear the good news of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. And so I, I play that as a as, as kind of a counterpoint and knowing that that's not exactly uh, what uh, the that uh, the people were fleeing from in the emergent conversation, but some of them did attend churches that were kind of this intense. And um, and I do think that Stephen Anderson is well. He's he's a legalist that, and that's a problem. It's it, he specializes in the law, not the gospel. And as a result of it, we got some problems. Now that being said, I want to make something clear here: is that I am not saying that uh, that we should. You know, I'm I'm not affirming the the basic premise of the story that uh, those who preach against homosexuality and say that it's a sin. Uh, should be labeled as hate, you know, as haters, or that that's a hate crime. That's not it at all. That's not, in fact, if you're getting that from this, then I'm miscommunicating because that's not my point. In fact, I'm a firm believer that Christian churches must continue to maintain the biblical, uh, the biblical line on this, and that is is that homosexual behavior and lust is a sin, and it is a sin that Christ died for, and that we must call our homosexual neighbors to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins but keep that keep in mind that's just that's just one of the many sins for which they need to be forgiven of that being said you know i i don't i, I think there's something seriously off and seriously wrong with stephen anderson's approach to the scripture and to the bible i think he's he's missed the point now all of that being said Okay, um, I'm about to play for you the audio from my lecture at the Outlaw Preachers. And I need to warn you ahead of time about something that as I was back going back and listening to this uh, to this lecture, uh, keep in mind, it was uh, delivered to a group of people who are, are on the liberal end of the spectrum. And um, and, you know, and and so I was keeping that in the forefront of my mind and that I was specifically going with a more subjective apologetic as a result of it. And uh, the reason being is because I find that folks who are on the left side of the spectrum theologically, um, they are, um, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, they, they, they get to, they, you know, they see things more artistically and subjectively than uh, than people on the right. And I understand that's a characterization, that's a generalization, but that's generally the truth. But uh, that's not to say that people on the left don't have a brain, they do. And it's not to say that people on the right don't have a heart, they do. Um, you know, what, So you got to keep that in mind. And the other thing is, is that as I was listening to it, something came to my mind as I was listening to it that um, I, I, at a portion, about all, you know, maybe about two-thirds of the way through the uh, my lecture, I use the uh, the phrase "pissed off," and um, this is one of those things where I'm reminded by the fact that some folks think that's uh, that crosses the line into cussing, and others don't. I've grown the culture I grew up in; that's not like not even close to uh, cussing. And so I need to I need to say that ahead of time so that you're not shocked by it. And if you're offended by it, I apologize in advance. I, I really wasn't trying to use it to be provocative or anything of that nature. Um, and I do understand that there are there is a group of people who think that that crosses the line into uh, the type of language that Christians should not uh, engage in. The way I grew up, that that's doesn't it doesn't fit into that category. And so I understand that this is a split thing. But I'm warning you ahead of time uh, so that uh, if you're offended by that. 
I am sorry that I offended you. I, there was no offense that was intended to be given by it. I was, and when you hear it in context, you'll understand what it is that I was trying to communicate. And uh, anyway, so that being said, here is my uh, lecture uh, on the uh, the book of Jonah, uh, the Jonah narrative, um, uh, uh, religious abuse, empire, and the gospel delivered at the 2010 Outlaw Preacher reunion. We'll go ahead and get started. And uh, it's so funny. I put so much time into this, uh, in preparing this, I can never figure out what I wanted to say at the beginning because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's an honor to be able to uh, speak at the Outlaw Preacher reunion, uh, considering the fact that I, uh, technically I'm not an Outlaw Preacher, although some of the Outlaw Preachers consider me to be. But I don't know, about a year ago, Connie and I had a, a Twitter battle, so to speak. And she said, why don't no. you become an Outlaw Preacher? And I said, well, I, Connie, I, I don't think I should be an outlaw preacher. She said, oh, but we have cookies. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, how do you fight such compelling argumentation? They have cookies. So, yeah. So, but uh, it was an honor to be able to come. And I wanted, to, I wanted the conversation, I wanted the, uh, the topic to be respectful and to, uh, and to uh, it, this venue allows me to do something I normally don't do. And that is, is that I'm not a big fan of Calvinistic reformed systematic theology. I, I, I don't like thinking of theology linearly. And as a result of it, I'm, I'm more drawn to the story. I'm more drawn to something that's, that's, that's different. And, uh, and because of the venue, it allows me to do something different. So with that, I'll, I'll start. I wept for Susan. I wept for her, and I felt stupid when I did it. And you're thinking, Susan, who? Well, she's not real. I mean, it's not like I'll ever meet her that somebody has met her. But if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, Susan Pevensey has a tragic ending in, in the book, The Last Battle. And the tragic ending is, is that she's not there to partake of the renewed and remade Narnia. And... What happens to her is almost a side note. What happened to her? She grew up. That's what happened to Susan Pevensey. And Lucy, in the last battle, complains about the fact that when she would try to speak with Susan about the past, about what it was like to be a Carapara Bell, to be Queens of Narnia, she would say, oh, what silly games we played when we were kids. Silly games we played. It was sad. She thought being grown up and thinking about lipstick and things that you can buy at the supermarket or the mall were more important than being a queen of Narnia. And sometimes when I look at the theological battles that go back and forth between left and right. I think that the argumentation about what the Bible is lose sight of a very important thing. That Jesus says that unless you have the faith of a child, you don't really have the faith that he's describing. And I think in many cases you can make the argument that what the scripture is is a children's story. And it sounds stupid. 
It doesn't sound deep, and I know it doesn't really pan out for some parts of it. How do you argue the Levitical law as a children's story? And then I think about my favorite episode of The Twilight Zone. I am a fan of Harlan Elias, and one of my favorite stories is a short story he wrote called Repent Harlequins of the TikTok Men. It's a completely absurd story. It's about some guy who dresses up like a clown, flies in a blimp, and throws jelly beans at people in order to mess up the time of the TikTok man, who was the one who controls everything. And yet I, I, I love it. Rapidly, my, my favorite movie is, is um, Brazil. If you've never seen Brazil, <laughs> it's a fantastic movie. And it grows on you. And it grows on you. But my favorite episode of The Twilight Zone, in the old black and white, um, was the episode called Kick the Can. And in the Kick the Can episode, you have a bunch of people in an old folks' home. You know, sick, near death. And, and this obscure old man, black man, and, and was wonderful convinces the people in the old folks' home to come outside and play a game of kick the can. I'm sorry if I'm emotional. I assure you it's, they're not Glenn Beck tears. <laughs> <laughs> but they go and they play kick the can. Some of them are convinced to do it. And when they play the game, something magical happens. They go from being near death to being alive, to being able to play again. Do you remember being a kid? Do you remember what it was like to go outside and just play kickball, play wiffle ball, play kick the can? Were we not alive when we were kids? Didn't matter who the kid was. I mean, you put kids together and kids conglomerate together and within a few minutes they're playing games. At least they were when we were growing up before the days of video games. And I think in many ways God's word invites us into the story to come play a game of kick the can. Because in some ways the evil that we experience in the world is described as growing up rather than being a child. And so I think the Jonah narrative is it's that kid's story aspect of it that we lose and we always think about the big fish. It gets translated into a whale and then you got people arguing about whether it's a fish or a whale and shut up. It's a kid's story. It's a kid's story. But it's a kid's story that really happened. Because I, I remember as a kid reading stories that, that would just fascinate me and being drawn into them in such a way that I felt like, oh, I wish I could meet Robin Hood. Oh, I wish I could meet Aragorn. Oh, I wish I could meet Lucy Pevensey. But we can meet Jonah. And the best part about this story is who the good guy is. It's not Jonah. 
It's not, that's not, it's not even the Ninevites. The good guy in the story is the one who we don't necessarily see, but who's all over the text. And so I want to work through it because as we look at how screwed up our world is today, what we see in this story is just absolute religious abuse. And what we see in the story also challenges a lot of the ideas that are being kicked around today regarding empire. Because some, sometimes the gospel gets reframed in such a way that it sounds a lot like what the gospel is is sticking it to the Caesar man. But yet what we find in this text is that God has his own way of looking at the Caesar man. And we need to consider that. And so I want to read the story. And I'm glad that overhead isn't working. Because when the stories were read in the past, people didn't have their Bibles open. The scroll was opened and people sat and they listened. And I hope you'll allow me some freedom to work with the text and to interject some things. Because one of the things I'll talk about is the stuff I'm working on in my doctorate as it pertains to fascism. Because I think there's an interesting connection here. And then we'll, and then we'll just kind of work it out. So we read in Jonah. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil, their evil has come up before me. This is unheard of. Gods in the ancient era were regional. You would travel to Egypt... And the gods of Egypt ruled that land. You would go into Philistia, and the gods of Philistia would run that land. Same with the Assyrians. The Ninevites were part of the Assyrian Empire, and they were known for their cruelty. Their god was Ashur, and Ashur was a sun god. And Ashur was merciful to his believers, but those who fell victim to him and his armies they experienced utter cruelty. One of the things they loved to do, would they, would, they would take their, their captives after they would take a city, and they're prisoners of war, and this is long before the Geneva Convention, they would take a section of them, usually the, the leaders, and they would take them outside of town, dig holes, and then bury them in the sand up to their neck, and they would die under the eye of Ashur. Known for their cruelty, they were terrorists, if you would, and cruelty in the Assyrian Empire was valued. It was, it was a family value, if you would. You raised your kids to be cruel. And so the word of the Lord comes to, to Jonah, and the evil of the Assyrians has come up before God. And you can at this point see Jonah saying, well, duh, it's taking you how long? This, this empire lasted for 300 years. 300 years of cruelty. I mean, these guys make the Nazis look like upstarts. Okay? Cruelty was their value. So Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, there's arguments over whether or not this is in Spain or if it's up in Turkey. Who cares? He's going the opposite way. You know, Nineveh doesn't touch water. He's heading the opposite way. And when you find out why he's heading the opposite way, it gets really interesting. He went down to Joppa, found a ship, going
going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will have a thought for us that we may not perish. You know, I hear that part of the story, and I cannot help but think of Mark, Mark's account from chapter 4. It says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, and just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? As the more I read the scriptures, the more convinced I am that this is a completely supernatural book. These connections cannot be by accident. They cannot be by coincidence. These themes occur over and over and over again. You, you get the same themes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so here we've got Jonah sleeping, and we've got Jesus sleeping. The difference with Jesus, though, Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? And in a very similar way, the guys here in the Jonah story these pagan mariners who basically are looking through their Rolodex to figure out which God to call out to. Call every one of them, please. We don't know which one's responsible. They have a similar response to the, the disciples' response to Jesus. So rise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So they said to one another, come let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come up, come upon us. Interesting there. What's, I mean, the thought is, is that this evil is obviously supernatural. Somebody's done something wrong. The gods are angry. Tell us in what account this evil has come. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Notice the guys don't say Yahweh who. They know exactly who he's talking about. This is the same God who destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. This is not a God to be reckoned with. The, the reputation of Yahweh was very well known among the Mediterranean world. Men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. 
And then they said to him, What shall we do? So that the sea might quiet down for us. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. Isn't it just like God, just to, you know, I mean, just when things get worse, they're figuring out that, that Jonah's the one who's at who's at odds here with God. And this is where the religious abuse comes into play. Because what he's up to is just downright criminal. It's not that he's just running from God. He's running from God for a reason. And this reason goes down deep into his prejudices, deep into his understanding of of God and who he is and what he's about. What shall we do to you so the sea might quiet down? The the sea grew more tempestuous. It's like God said, all right, you got the right guy, and he's going to make it even worse. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Human sacrifice. Jonah gets to play the part of the virgin in the volcano. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Can you not see Christ in this? Do you not see it? It's there. It's it's like it's there in bold letters. I mean, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, the, the day the, the the day of the resurrection. Two of Jesus' disciples are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside with of them and walks the road with them. Why are you guys downtrodden? What, 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 why are you so downcast? The scripture said that their eyes were held. It's an interesting Greek word. It's, just, it's like, you know, I'm going to hold your eyes. They didn't recognize Jesus. And they said, are you just coming to Jerusalem? Do you, do you not hear Jesus? They crucified Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. And the worst, we had our women come and tell us that he had been raised from the dead, that they'd seen him and the angels and everything. And then it says, beginning with the Torah and the prophets, he showed to them all of the passages of Scripture pertaining to him. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and he said to them, You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, yet they are the very Scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. These stories are not about you. These stories are about him. And I read this passage where you have these pagans praying to Yahweh, not one that they normally pick up on their Rolodex to pray to. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And I cannot help but hear Matthew's gospel account of Jesus' trial before Pilate. Let me pull this up really quick. It's, it's this amazing passage about innocent blood. It's horrible. Now the feast of the governor, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd one prisoner whom they wanted. 
and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? You're familiar with Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. This is being played out perfectly. There's two goats. There's two. One is to be sacrificed. All the sins of the people are to be atoned for through the blood of that one sacrifice. But the other one, the sins of the people are laid on that one, and it's driven out of the camp to purge the camp of the sin. So here we've got the Day of Atonement, literally. Yom Kippur, literally. That Yom Kippur, all of those sacrifices in the Mosaic Law, pointing to this one sacrifice. And it's being played out perfectly where you even have the scapegoat, one, one of them being released. Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Beside, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood, let it be on us and on our children. His blood, let it be on us and on our children. What are they praying for? But is that not what we pray for ourselves? Let the blood of Christ cover our sins. Let his blood be on us, an innocent man. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, they delivered him over to be crucified. I read in Jonah here this prayer, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us his innocent blood. But he's not innocent. And I see Christ in here. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging, and then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. Just like the disciples were in awe over the fact that Jesus hushed the Sea of Galilee with a word, now these men, seeing the might of God and seeing that he truly is the one who controls the wind and the waves and the sea, seeing this, they feared Yahweh. And they stopped calling on those other pagan gods. Those things kind of fell out of the Rolodex and they made sacrifices to the one true God. So then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And this is exactly what Jesus talks about when he was confronted with his own authority to do the things he was doing. It says in Matthew 12, some of the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus here connecting himself directly with Jonah. This account, again, pointing us back to Christ. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me, and then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Even in his depths, the depths of his despair here, at the point of death, he has hope in seeing the holy temple of God. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but when God tells you to do something and you say no, technically wouldn't that be a sin? Just, I'm just following, you want to make sure that I'm in the right category here. One of the things I've noticed is that as I, as I travel to different conferences, emergent and conservative and seeker-driven and all this kind of stuff, one of the things I've noticed is, is that each of the different camps preach against each other. It's really funny to watch, okay? Drifting in and out of both camps, I can see how it's, it's, it's ironic. But one of the things I found is, is, that, is that both camps are right and both camps are wrong in certain senses. And... Um, one of the things that's almost like you can, it's like to a T you can line this up, is that those who are of a more liberal bent, they see institutional sins so clear. And they're so right when they see those institutional sins. Yeah, they, they can smell institutional corruption quicker than you can say BP. Okay? On the conservative side, for some reason, institutional sins don't seem to show up on the radar. Everything comes down to individual morality. Okay? And as a result of it, you've got both groups kind of doing this. You know? And I, and I feel like, oh, Capulet and Montague, a pox on both of your houses. You know? It's like, it's not an either-or proposition. It really isn't an either-or proposition. In many cases, it's a both-and. You know, I think both sides have much to learn from each other. I hate the fact that when you go into conservative circles and you talk about inherent institutional sins, they think you're some kind of a commie pinko. It's like, what? We've never heard this before. You've been, you've been influenced by liberalism, haven't you? And then sometimes, depending on which liberal you talk to, you start talking about individual morality and what God's law, what God has revealed his will is in his law, and people get really nervous. Because they're thinking, ah, oh, judgmental, judgmental, judgmental. You know, it's like, calm down. You need to understand what the law is for. We'll get to that. When we look at Jonah in the individual morality category, all I see is a failure. Okay, and his sin gets magnified even more. And you can sit there and say, yeah, but well, he eventually did preach the word of the Lord. Yes, and he did so quite begrudgingly. But wait till we find out what he did. So we continue with Jonah. He's in the middle of this fish. Quite a disgusting situation. 
He's praying. I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple again. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Tell me that's not Christ. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Again, here in Jonah, we see a clear picture of Christ and his crucifixion. Remember the, the sons of thunder, the, the James and John, they come to Jesus. Where they're heading towards Jerusalem, and they're thinking the kingdom of God is going to be set up in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to ride in as a conquering king. We're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to get rid of all of these immoral pagans. And they're thinking going back to Joshua, you know, conquering Cana kind of thing. And so James and John come to Jesus, and they're, they're trying to jockey for high-level cabinet positions in his soon-to-be-inaugurated administration. Jesus, we want you to make a deal with us. When you come into your kingdom, let one of us be on your right and the other on your left. They want the top dog spots, right? Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke them at all. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Yeah, 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 we can drink it. Yeah, well, you will drink the cup I'm going to drink. But to give those positions of who's on the right, my right, and on my left, those are only reserved for the Father. Jesus, when he comes into his glory, God the Father had already assigned who would be on Jesus' right and on his left. And we come to find out they were two thieves. Jesus, when he came into his glory, was stripped naked, scourged, and bleeding, hanging on a cross with reeds around his head, woven a crown of thorns. That's Jesus' inauguration day. And on his right and on his left were two thieves. Jesus, when he came into his glory, those were those positions that were reserved by the Heavenly Father. And you think about it. Jesus in his glory, it's the most horrible, horrific thing to look at. Him bleeding and dying, crucifixion was ugly. These poor guys had bugs covering them up, eating their flesh. It was blood and urine and fecal matter. It was a mess. And that's Jesus' greatest moment of glory. That's his, his, his inauguration as our king. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay to the Lord. And this is the climax, really, of the book. This is the most important sentence. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And you can hear all the little kids listening to the story going, Ew! And isn't it wonderful when they do that? I remember telling the story of 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace to my daughter, my youngest daughter. She had to be five at the time. And she hung on every word. It was amazing to watch as she was listening to me tell the story. And she was genuinely terrified for poor Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were being thrown into the fiery furnace. And then the text says, one like an angel, like the Son of Man, was in there. There was four in there. And my daughter, when she is five, she jumps up on her feet and she says, Jesus came to save them. Yeah, I did. And that's not what Jesus does for all of us. He saves us all from the fiery furnace. He doesn't let us go into there alone. And even though the devil pumps the fire up to five times as hot as it should be, Jesus is there to walk us through and get us through it unharmed and unscathed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. These are such profound truths. It pains me when people go to church and they don't hear the stories. <coughs> they don't hear the text. They don't hear what a great Savior they have. Instead, they, the Bible is stripped mind for tips on healthy living, tips on how to make your sex life spicier. Isn't that what Playboy's for? <laughs> <laughs> So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I get the feeling that Jonah was probably a little bit better predisposed to listen to the Lord the second time. (laughs) Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. You're supposed to go, what? They did what? Now notice his message wasn't, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He actually preached the wrath of God. He actually preached judgment and destruction. And it's not politically correct, and yet there it is. God is loving and he's just. God truly, truly punishes sin. But God didn't have this message preached because he hated them, and we're going to see this in the text. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Pause here for a second. Nineveh is not Israel. It's Assyria. The king of Nineveh is one of the highest officials in the empire of Assyria. And yet... God is not unmerciful to him. God loves even this guy. 
We're talking about a guy who, in our day and age, would be a war criminal. We're talking about a guy in our day and age who is somewhere akin to a Hitler, a Pol Pot, a Stalin. That's what we're talking about here. Somebody, not too, not too long ago, I saw this on a conservative site. You know, the news recently made the rounds about Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, it's been a while since he's been dead. But um, Dahmer, it, we've come to find out that he was befriended by some Christians and that he was absolved. He prayed for mercy and forgiveness from God for his sins. And I read on a conservative blog, a lady, she wrote, I have, don't want to have anything to do with a heaven where Jeffrey Dahmer is there. I don't want to have anything to do with a heaven where Jeffrey Dahmer is there. And sometimes, sometimes I hear people say things like, I don't want to have anything to do with a kingdom of God where Republicans are there, or Democrats are there, or homosexuals are there, or people who are screwed up drug addicts are there. As if somehow heaven is reserved for the really holy angelic people. But here's the joke on all of us. None of us is holier an angelic person. We're all screwed up. To put it politely. But here we have this little Caesar, if you would. This imperial magistrate. This man who is high up in the official empire of the Assyrians And God sends Jonah to him to preach judgment and law, and he repents in sackcloth and ashes. Do you want to share heaven with the king of Nineveh? I'm telling you, if he was alive today and doing what he did back then, he would be all over the news. This guy would be vilified, and rightly so. Do you want to share heaven with him? Now we get to another part about empire, which is very interesting. I'm going to read to you a quote from George Steiner's fictional portrayal of Hitler in The Portage to San Cristal, written in 1981. First, the invisible but all-seeing, the unattainable but all-demanding God of Sinai. Second, the terrible sweetness of Christ. Had the Jew not done enough to sicken man? This is Hitler's words. Look at them. Prophets, martyrs, smashers of imagers, word spinners, drunk with the terror of the absolute. It was only a step, it was only a step, gentlemen, a small inevitable step from Sinai to Nazareth, from Nazareth to the covenant of Marxism. The Jew has pressed on us the blackmail of transcendence. Let me translate that for you. Many, when we think of fascism, we think of fascism post-World War II. The first thing that comes to our mind is Dachau, Buchenwald, Buchenwald, and all, and all of these concentration camps. That's not fascism. That's the result of it, but it's not fascism. If you rewind the historical tape to 1933, fascism meant something. Fascism meant something, and it meant something, and it had a very, very, very strong hatred of Judaism 
for a particular reason. And that particular reason was that the God of the Jews acted like he ran the whole show. Okay? That Jesus acted like he was the king of kings. Okay? And Hitler and his fascist philosophy... And fascism, by the way, in case you don't really understand really what it is, it's a powerful cocktail of several different philosophies. Okay? It begins in existentialism, particularly Soren Kierkegaardian existentialism with its embrace of paradox that's in a way absurd. It, throw into the mix Friedrich Nietzsche in his Ubermensch, in his Man and Superman, and these ideas. And then to really bring the whole thing to life, you mix in Heidegger. You put those three philosophies together and you've got an irrational philosophy that deconstructs everything. It's important to note that when Hitler came to power, he refused to join any of the other existing political parties in Germany. Instead, he, had a, he was very true to his philosophy. And as a result of it, he didn't want to have to make any compromises. And so he started his own party and grew that party via small group studies during what's known as the, um, uh, the Volkisch Milieu period between the two wars. Okay? And Jew, uh, Jews were particularly hated because the God of the Jews demanded allegiance to him above allegiance to nation and above allegiance to Fuhrer. God was seen, the transcendent God of the Jews was seen as a competing emperor. And Hitler hated the God of the Jews for that reason. And Christianity was only tolerated during the Nazi era as long as Christianity was willing to de-Judaize itself. A good book to read on this is called The Twisted Cross. And it shows how Christianity, during the time before the war, started off and then drifted in by bringing in these Aryan fascist elements. And so here in the book of Jonah, we have the perfect example of the very thing that Hitler hated. You have God, Yahweh, who is supposed to be a regional territorial god of a backwater region of Palestine, sending a prophet to the Assyrian Empire that glorifies cruelty, that glorifies power, that really in the old world glorified the Nietzschean concept of the Ubermensch. Strong, wolf-like, powerful, able to devour. You don't, wolves don't go among wolves and complain and say, oh, we've got to stop eating little sheep. <laughs> right? Wolves would say, man, that was a great way you tore the head off that sheep. That was just some great wolfiness right there. So that's the idea behind it. But here we have the God of the Jews acting like he's running the show and that he's above empire. He's above every nation state. And he can exert his will as if he's the king of all kings. And this was the reason why Hitler hated the Jews. Read Mein Kampf back with that lens on and you'll understand what's going on. It's not that it was just some kind of a thing that had to do with nationality. It had to do with the philosophy. It had to do with the theology. It had to do with the transcendence of the God of the Jews that was so, so ugly to Hitler. And so Hitler would hate this story 
Because here in this, we've got this narrative of Yahweh behaving like he's running everything. Let me give you another quote from uh, the book Modern Fascism uh, by Jean Edward Vieth. Fascism has, defi- has been defined as the practical and violent resistance to transcendence. That's what fascism is. It is a practical and violent resistance to transcendence. Fascist spirituality is one of eminence, a mysticism of nature and community, the land and the blood would heal the alienation of modern life. The Jews, on the other hand, were the source of transcendent religion with all of its implications. A common motif of Nazi anti-Semitism was that Jews were cerebral and abstracted and detached from life and from nature itself. This is Paul DeMond's point in one of his anti-Semitic essays where he wrote for a uh, collaborationist periodical, quote, Their cerebralness, their capacity to assimilate doctrines while maintaining a cold detachment from them is one of the specific characteristics of the Jewish mind. Such a way of thinking is intrinsically alienating, and the Nazis considered alienation to be the the specific legacy of the Jews. You see, this idea of a transcendent God alienates you from your community. Okay? The foundation of the Hebrew tradition is monotheism. It was a common complaint of fascist intellectuals that the Jews invented the idea of one God. According to the poet, fascist propagandist Ezra Pound, the Jewish religion began when Moses, having to keep a troublesome rabble in order, scared them by inventing a disagreeable boogeyman, which he called God. Interesting all, though, isn't it? But yet, when you read the Hebrew narratives about the God who is transcendent, he's not a boogeyman. And that's kind of the punchline of all of the stories in the scripture, even all of the prophets. Read Jeremiah, read Isaiah, even read Amos, as brutal as he is. Over and again, they preach the law to convict people of their sins and and to show them their need to turn And always, 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 God is held out as being forgiving and merciful and kind. Always. And this is what's at the heart of of the Jonah narrative. So we continue reading. So, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast to put on sackcloth from from the greatest of them to the least. And the word, I mean, picture... Nazi Germany. This is what this is what we're talking about. This is Jonah goes into Berlin and preaches to Berlin and they repent in sackcloth and ashes. Do you want to share heaven with Hitler? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Hmm. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And now all hell is going to break loose. But this displeased Jonah 
exceedingly, and he was angry. How is it that a representative of the loving, kind, and merciful God would be displeased when the Ninevites repent? Does it not say that the angels of heaven rejoice when one sinner repents? Here we've got Nineveh repenting. Could you imagine the party in heaven? And Jonah is not happy. Right. It displeased Jonah and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste. You know what? I'm reading this wrong. If you're going to read the narrative right, it, it basically the Hebrew says that his anger was boiling. Here's his prayer. Lord, is this not what I said when I was with you in the, in the country? That's how the text reads. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's how the text reads. That's how the text reads. He's pissed off that God is merciful, kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you don't get the paradox until you raise your voice. I'm pissed off at you, God, for being merciful. Right. And yet there's these wonderful attributes... Jonah knew the whole time. He didn't want to go, not because he didn't like the Ninevites, but because he didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to go into eternity as a bunch of stinking, rotten, terrorist, imperial idiots. And he knew that if he went and preached repentance, that they would turn and God would forgive Which begs the question, do we sometimes, are we not guilty of not preaching God's law? Because it was God's law, here in this case, that drove them to repentance. Because the opposite side of that coin is the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, in Luke 24, commissions the church. And this is how the kingdom of God grows. Luther says the kingdom of God is a kingdom of the forgiveness of sins, and he's right. The kingdom of God is filled with forgiven sinners. And Jesus says in Luke 24, Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name to all nations. How was the Messiah prepared for? It was John the Baptist. This is not a guy you would want preaching at your church. Okay, I guarantee you, he does not fall into the category of how to win friends and influence people. (laughs) First of all, his dietary habits are pretty disgusting, and his wardrobe is not very good at all. He's in need of a total makeover. Okay, But the worst part about it is, is that he preaches and rails against sins. And what the common folks are, are repenting, and they're going, and they're confessing their sins to him, and he's d- baptizing him in the Jordan River, and their sins are being forgiven. And then you've got the Pharisees sending their officials, and what does he do? 
You can just see the spit coming out of his mouth as he says to them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say that we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. You brood of vipers. Translations, your moms are snakes. You know, think back to the garden at this point. Right? And that's how the... how. The way of Jesus was prepared for, right? And even Jesus, when he goes into towns, he preaches repentance. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Preaches repentance. Jonah does the same thing. And what happens? They turn and God forgives and Jonah's pissed off. I knew you are a gracious God and a merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please kill me. It is better for me to die than to live. And now watch, is is it not Jonah who was in need of God's mercy not too long ago, right? Now, you would think, that God would be pissed off at Jonah. But what is he doing with Jonah? He's slow to anger, abounding in fast love and patient and forgiving and kind even to Jonah, his very disrespectful, disobedient prophet. And not only that, it makes you wonder if Jonah had some kind of a deep-seated bigotry towards the Assyrians at this point. So the Lord said to him, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer at first. So Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east, of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till it should see, so he should see what became of the city. He was hoping. Come on, fireworks. Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? Right? Tell me we're not dealing with the same God. Jesus, this is, oh gosh. So now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. <sighs> what an undeserving idiot. Right? What an undeserving... Mean, and look how kind God is to him. And I think back to the times when I was under men in the church who refused to preach the gracious and kindness of God to me. And how I was this close to being an atheist. How I always thought that God was completely pissed off at me. But the joke is, is that God isn't that way at all. He's not Zeus. We're not dealing with Zeus, we're dealing with Yahweh. And he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious and kind. Even to his prophet. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And then again he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What a jerk. What a complete idiotic jerk. He's a prophet of God. God needs to do a better job in his recruiting. I don't like him at all. 
I've sat under this guy as a pastor. <laughs> yeah, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And this is the best part. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You see, God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And if you think about it, each and every one of us, we've been brought into existence because God has spoken us into existence. A long time ago, a long time ago, he said, let there be light, and let there be land, and let there be animals. And there was. And then he fashioned man and made him in his own image. And he called all of us into existence in and through Adam. But we, that is unfolding generation after generation. Each and every one of us called into existence by the will of God, by the voice of God. He spoke us into this story. We find ourselves into the story that he's the one who's written. I love it in, in, the, in one of the Chronicles of Narnia books. I think it's the magician's nephew. There's a picture of Aslan creating one of the universes of, of, you know, at that time. And so you actually get to see Aslan in his creative act. And C.S. Lewis pictures Aslan not just speaking these worlds into existence, but singing a song. And it's beautiful. He's singing these worlds into existence. And there's high notes and low notes. And when the low notes come in, mountains form. And the high notes come in, and birds are twittering. And it's this amazing picture. And, you know, I think our God is so much like that. He spoke us all into existence, and here he speaks a plant into existence. He commissions it, it comes about. We're dealing with a very interesting God. So God then kind of leaves off with this thought. I love the way Jonah ends because it ends in such a way that none of the loose ends are tied up. It's left for you to deal with the ending. But God is the one who is the hero in the story. Ninevites are, are the protagonists or the antagonists. Jonah is an antagonist. And here we've got God. You pity the plant for which you did not labor. You did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God cares about 120 terrorist Ninevites? And cattle. And cattle. And cattle. <laughs> yeah, and cattle. And he cares about their cattle, too. And I think about, there's a, where's, I forget the passage. There's this wonderful passage that describes the joys of heaven like a young calf springing from its stall. You know, for the first time. And there's joy and, and all this kind of stuff. And you realize, you realize that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, heaven is going to be filled with Ninevites. Jerk prophets. There'll be a couple of attorneys there. You know, and at the end of the day, we're all going to say something to the effect of, you know, the entire time, it was, it was all that simple. It was just the blood of Christ and nothing else. It was the blood of Christ and nothing else. We're going to be surprised at the people who are there. We're going to be surprised. And there is a hell, but C.S. Lewis says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. It's really a tragedy. 
is really a mess. Spent a lot of time researching hell in preparation for my debate with Doug on it. And I'm convinced that Lewis was right. The people who end up in hell really are the they really want to be there. They really don't want to have anything to do with this kind and merciful and forgiving God, who at the same time has the right, by the fact that he's our creator, to express his will and act like he's the king of kings and lord of lords, that he really does have the ability and the right to make demands of us, and that when we say no, we really are really, really in defiance and rebellion against him. But that defiance and rebellion doesn't have the last word. The last word is that God has pity on those who don't know their right hand from their left, and he even cares for their cattle. It's challenging, and it's beautiful. And I can worship and serve that God, because that's the God I need, because I can't please the other one. I couldn't figure out how to do it. But this is the one who is pleased, who has basically done everything necessary to make me pleasing on account of Christ. And that's the great news, is that we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And over and again, when the communion liturgy comes up, it's so beautiful. You know, Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, gave it to His disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same night also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take it, drink, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Over and again we come to the Lord's table. Over and again he invites us to his table to take his broken body and his blood and eat and drink for the forgiveness of our sins. When we go to church, when we go to hear the word, we're there not to perform some religious rite to, to do what's necessary to create some kind of thing where we do a transaction. Instead, we go to church to receive these amazing gifts from God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and gracious on our for, to us and toward us and even towards our cattle, all because of Christ and his shed blood for our sins. And that's what all I have to say. So there you have it. What would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we need your generous financial contributions to keep doing what we're doing. You can support us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>